Well, thank you, friends, for this opportunity to be here. Thank you for Ryan and Trent and Desert Springs and the music folks. Thank you, uh, Drew and Matt and Sarah and everybody. The, the music here has just been wonderful, uh, both the selection of the songs, the way they've been done. And thank you, Greg, dear brother in ministry. Thank you for that opening message from chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I think that well prepares us for our journey through Romans. In fact, it's a great summary, as Greg said, of Romans. If you open up your Bibles, you look again at chapter 1. After verses 16 and 17, uh, it gets very dark in the rest of chapter 1. Paul looks out on the Gentile world, uh, the world that he and his fellow Jews were living in, and he sees much reason for God's wrath. But then in chapter 2, lest the readers and the hearers who were themselves Jewish start to feel somehow content, uh, even complacent, because they possessed the law of God, Paul wanted to address them as well. Friends, I think Protestant evangelical churches should of all places be marked by humility. Protestant evangelical churches should of all places be marked by humility. The Reformation rightly understood and applied, undermines self-righteousness. And I think we see that clearly here in this second chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. As I say, right before the second chapter, you have the, the grim ending of chapter 1. And now in chapter 2, Paul continues to pursue his case against humanity. Uh, again, 18 to 32 of chapter 1, really summing up his concerns about the Gentiles sinning. Chapter 2 proves the need of the sinning Jew. Uh, Paul turns from the openly depraved in chapter 1 to the secretly depraved in chapter 2. And since Ryan gave us the choice of what bits of Romans we wanted to preach on, and since I knew I was going to speak to a room full of people who on a Friday night were paying money to hear the Bible preached, I thought, I'm going to skip the rest of chapter 1. I'm going to go to chapter 2. Because this is more likely to be the people who pay money to hear the Bible preached on a Friday night. He turns from the openly immoral to the apparently moral. Chapter 2 has a number of concluding and transitioning statements that really summarize and advance Paul's argument. We'll structure our argument around them tonight. Really, if you're looking at your chapter, if you mark up your Bible, which you should mark up your Bible, if you feel it's irreverent to mark on God's word, don't worry. Uh, God's word will be just fine. Uh, there are many copies of it around the world that will not receive your marking. If you own more than one Bible, the other Bibles you have will not receive your marking. Uh, just to help your own mind, mnemonically, to remember things, just mark it up. Uh, let me tell you a few verses to Mark in chapter 2 to feel the bones of his argument. They're the transitional statements you'll find in verses 1 and 6 and 11 and 16 and 24 and the very last sentence in the chapter in verse 29. So again, that's verses 1 and 6 and 11 and 16 and 24 and that last sentence in verse 29. We want to consider what Paul says about the responsibility these people bear and the hypocrisy that marks them. And I pray that as we do that, this study will be helpful 
in your life in exposing hypocrisy and ridding you of it. As Paul in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 burns down every house of righteousness you and I would attempt to live in in order finally there in 3, 20 and 21 to drive us to Christ. So in Romans 2, Paul says hypocrisy is three things. This will be the structure of our walking through the chapter tonight. Paul says hypocrisy is number one, inexcusable. Uh, Number two, pointless. And number three, blasphemous. He says it's number one, inexcusable. Two, pointless, and that's really what he's saying through most of the chapter. And then finally, blasphemous. First, we see that hypocrisy is inexcusable. Uh, with chapter 2, verse 1, Paul turns from the shameless immorality of chapter 1, 18 to 32, to the self-confident morality of many Jews, and probably not a few non-Jews as well. Uh, God-fearers who would attend Jewish synagogues and think that because they adopted Jewish codes of morality, they too were godly. Look with me at Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Many have wondered who exactly Paul has in mind when he writes you here in this chapter. Is he talking about uh, the Christians in the church of Rome or, or is he talking about all Christians? Well, I don't think he's talking about all Christians, at least not primarily. Uh, When Paul writes this in the Greek all throughout chapter 2, he uses you in the singular. He is imagining the person that he's asking questions to. Now, does that mean that he has one particular person he's writing to? I I don't think so. I I think, as I say, he's he's writing to what, uh, well, or in what scholars would call a a diatribe style. He's, He's folding out an argument, he's unfolding an argument by giving himself an imaginary interlocutor. And it's a style he uses throughout Romans. And it's a style that's very common. You you invent this imaginary opponent or questioner. Um, And it's a very simple way to explain something. Well, Paul's imaginary opponent is clearly Jewish. That becomes clear as the chapter goes on. But these early verses may do double duty and take in the moral Gentile as well. And he has some words for them specifically. So look look back at verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. 
Well, that's, that's actually a very natural response to the encouragement of immorality that we read about in verse 32 of chapter 1, where Paul says, although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Of course, these chapter numbers weren't there when Paul wrote this. These chapter numbers are put in centuries later to help Christians refer to certain sections of this letter. Uh, and sometimes they, they make us think there's a division in the argument that's not really there. So he's just talked about these people who approve. So Paul is really continuing to talk about this. And this is a natural response to this encouragement of immorality he envisions there in verse 32. So he's saying, okay, it's over and against such terrible stuff. Uh, Paul's imaginary interlocutor exclaims confidently, oh, we're not like that. We condemn this kind of action. Well, Paul goes on from there and look at the structure of what he says here in these first few verses. So in the first half of verse one, he says, ah, therefore you are without excuse. Second half of verse one, when you do the same thing, when you judge others, and then at the end and do the same things, you condemn. Verse two, God will judge such people. That's really his point in that first paragraph. Verse 3, you deceive yourself. Verse 4, you show contempt for God. Verse 5, you store up God's wrath. You, you see the point he's making in verses 1 and 2 and 5. He lays out the utter inexcusability of such sin continuing and the certainty of judgment and really the terribleness of treasuring up God's wrath. Uh, the moral and religious hypocrisy envisioned doesn't serve anyone well, least of all the hypocrites themselves. They're just calling for God's judgment to pile on them. And you see what he's saying there about the inescapability of God's judgment. Oh, friend, God is not going to be put off on the last day by simple blame shifting. You know, Greg talked about all the, the red on our report of our life. Well, we can't go, oh, yeah, I get a lot of red, but oh, God, look over there. Oh, that's a lot more red. Yeah, God, God's not as easily distracted <laughs> as we are. He's exceedingly competent. He's very, very faithful. He notices how we have used every breath as those made in his image. He understands such blame shifting. He's heard us do it for a long time. The woman you gave me. Such condemning, judgmental religion may have looked good to some limited set of people. I'm sure that there were as many morally proud people then in the first century as there are today. But they would have ultimately been confident that they would have awoken on a day in which their lives obscured their lips and their walk mattered more than their talk. I wonder if you've thought very much about waking up on that morning when it won't be a friend's fallible judgment that you face. You know, they never knew you did this. They never heard you say that. You never treated them like that. Oh, no one at church knew about that. That won't be what you face on that one day that's coming. No, but you will face God's unerring judgment. I think everybody thinks about it sometimes, even if we don't admit it. Well, let me just be clear here, reflecting on Romans chapter 2. Every time you criticize someone else, 
whether you're doing it out loud or just in the privacy of your own heart. You're simply giving God one more piece of evidence that you know well enough how you should live. You're completing his case against your own righteousness. And yet, you continue on, not repenting, not changing. And friend, if that marks your life, finally, you deceive yourself. You reason it because nothing has happened yet, nothing ever will. And so you throw away God's kindness that comes to you every day, new every day, new every hour, every minute new. And his kindness of not condemning you for your sins already, he says right here very explicitly in verse 4, is meant precisely to lead you to repentance. So friend, if you are here tonight not having repented, do not fool yourself. Don't dismiss God. Repent. Repent of your sins. Trust what God's spirit is telling you even now as we study his word together. One of the most amazing things about Jesus Christ is exactly what Greg just had us meditating on, that Jesus never sinned. Greg, I liked your three-second illustration and, and even your idea of pride by the second and a half through or by the third second. And it is amazing that Jesus never did that. It is amazing that his life was truly perfect. So he could actually contemplate that final evaluation on the last day with no nervousness that you and I would naturally feel. He could actually contemplate someone knowing every nook and cranny of his heart and it being perfectly good, perfectly as it should be, perfectly righteous, perfectly loving toward God and toward others. Now, friends, we're not like that. And I, I don't mean that simply if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. I, I mean that here of all of us. Those of us here who are Christians tonight have to work to remember our own faults sometimes. We need to remember that these words about sin are not written about those people out there. They're written about us people in here. I think these verses at the beginning of chapter 2 can sound so much like us, can't they? You who pass judgment, you judge. You who pass judgment, you a mere man pass judgment. I mean, talk about putting the fox in charge of the chickens. The idea that you and I are in a moral position to judge someone else and ultimately to condemn them? Brother, sister, I wonder if your own keen perception of the faults of others ever drives you to examine yourselves. I'm old enough to have been a Christian back in the 1970s when there were people around who were getting the idea that they had the gift of prophecy by which they meant the gift of criticizing people. <laughs> what a blessed gift that was. <laughs> How kind the Lord has seemed to have moved so many of them on. Friend, you, you better than anybody else knows your own tendency to criticize. What those things are in your own heart and life that you, you tend to think, even if you don't vocalize it, they're there in your heart. But do you realize that the people that you would criticize experience the same frailties that you do? The allowances that you naturally make for your own disobediences. Is there a way you could be more charitable in your own heart? 
making those for other? Do you have any idea who that person that you are tempted to be so impatient with? Do you have any idea what they've been through today? What they've put up with? What they're enduring? I think we could stand to be more sympathetic and patient because of the very reality Paul brings out here that he warns his fellow Jews with. Our tendency to criticize puts us ourselves in a morally endangered position. So we can't, we can't stop ourselves from doing that entirely, but we can use it as Paul does here as evidence to burn down the house of our own self-righteousness whenever we'd be tempted to stay there or even take a nap there or climb up in it and look down at someone else from. Friends, burn that down. The next time you are ready to speak against someone critically, try coming alongside them instead. I pray that God will make each church that's represented here, a church marked by humility, a church marked by mercy. I mean, of all places, it should be in the church that we know there is no excuse for hypocrisy. It is completely inexcusable that we would try to arrange the opinions of mere mortals about us in some way that's inaccurate so as to impress them when God, the only judge who ever matters, already knows us more completely than we know ourselves. There is no excuse for hypocrisy. But Paul makes another argument, um, and this takes up much of chapter 2. Not only is this hypocrisy inexcusable, given the way religious people live and judge, also this hypocrisy is pointless And he brings out three different reasons this is the case. First, because God will judge according to deeds anyway, not according to any religious reputation. It's not what people at church think of you. That's what Paul says here in verses 6 to 10. Look down with me again, chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. God will give back to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So God's judgment, Paul is telling his fellow Jews, God's judgment is according to what we have done. Now, he seems to have in mind here in this verse 6, one of two places in the Hebrew scriptures. Either Psalm uh, 62, verse 12, surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. Or Proverbs 24, verse 12, will God not repay each person according to what he's done? But friends, this is just not an unusual sentiment in the Bible. When, When Jesus taught, he taught this himself. He says in Matthew 16, verse 27, the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. According to what he has done. So notice Paul's argument here. It's the contrast between the good doers and the evil doers. So verse seven, 
The good doers, he said, will get life. In verse 8, the evildoers will get wrath. But then notice how Paul intensifies his argument by insisting that this judgment according to deeds will come to, and this is the surprising thing for them. This is where he's beginning to spring the trap on them. It will come to all Jews and Gentiles. You see, back in chapter 1, he's condemning the Gentiles. The Jews are fine with that. They understand they're the goyim, they're the dogs. But the Jews, Paul, we, we have been given the gift of God's law. But Paul is saying it's those who do. And he's preaching this from the Hebrew scriptures. Verse 9 there, evildoers, Jewish or Gentile, get wrath. So he said it in verse 8, he repeats it in verse 9, making explicit that it includes the Jews as well. And then verse 10, to finish the parallel, good doers, Jewish or Gentile, get glory, honor, and peace. Now, many people in Paul's own day didn't seem to understand this. Certainly, Paul's own experience as a Jew gave him an understanding of the sense of immunity from divine justice that many Jews had. Thus, Paul bears in on them here, and he makes this point about God's judgment being according to deeds. Their ethnicity would not shield them from God's penetrating gaze. Friend, I hope that you will find the same consideration having the same effect on you. Consider God's judgment. Consider God's judgment on you for what you have done. Reconsider your life. Realize that no religious heritage from your parents, Jewish or Christian, will prevent God from judging you. But oh, you say, you being my imaginary questioner, Christ is all about mercy. Weren't you, weren't you just telling us uh, that, that Christ is all about mercy? Y yes, friends, but Christ too taught that God would distinguish not based upon our bloodline, but based upon our deeds. So Christ told parables about people who thought they were in the kingdom being excluded from it. Think of Matthew 25. And he included Gentiles in his kingdom. Gentiles who repented of their sins. Like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. You see, she didn't get into the kingdom because of her bloodline. But you see what she did? She repented. Just stare at verse 6 for a second. I wonder if this offends you. Again, you're in church on a Friday night. You wouldn't say it does. But in your own heart of hearts, does this seem to evacuate grace from Christianity? It shouldn't. What Paul is saying here is that hypocrisy, that, that lifestyle that jettisons real deeds merely for reputation's sake, that hypocrisy, that satisfaction with religious spin rather than religious substance, that hypocrisy is pointless because, because God's judgment will be righteous and will be seen to be righteous. And it is exactly that concern of God's that his justice, justice be demonstrated that helps us to understand something of why his judgment will be on the basis of works. Friends, if, if God really wanted to judge us based upon 
what we have done, then we have to realize the futility of putting so much energy into merely how we appear religiously. If he really is going to judge us on what we've done, then surely our appearance of being religious is not as valuable as some of us may be tempted to make it. It certainly won't fool the only one who will finally judge us. And realize that an emphasis on doing good is not opposed to an emphasis on trusting Christ. We'll see that as we keep going through Romans. But if you have no heart to do good, how do you ever come to the end of yourself? How do you ever come to recognize your need for Christ? God's grace is never an excuse for our sin. Paul will come to that very clearly in chapter 3. Friends, the, the utter pointlessness of hypocrisy should be reinforced in our churches with a care to encourage real discipleship so that Christianity is seen to be and experienced as not simply a faith professed but a faith working. This is why we insist in our own congregation on those who would come regularly to our church being members and formally joining because that way we get to work to encourage them to understand the gospel, to rely on Christ, uh, to not rely on their own self-righteousness or their own religious activity. We encourage them to get involved in each other's lives. Why should we be so diligent in the difficult work of warning and admonishing and even of disciplining and excommunicating? Why should we go through all of this? Because, friends, God is not indifferent to our lives. The fact that Christianity is of grace doesn't mean it doesn't matter how we live. But the way we live is never the basis of our confidence. Our confidence is only in Christ. It's in the wonderful power of the gospel we were just thinking of in chapter 1. Hypocrisy is also pointless, Paul says here, because God does not show favoritism based upon religious appearance. Look there in chapter 2, verse 11. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And here is the part that surprised everybody. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness in their thoughts, now accusing, even now defending them. You know, many Jews at the time seemed to think that the mere possession of God's law would ensure their justification on the last day. But Paul says that's not so. And his argument here is very simple in these verses. The first half of verse 12, look, he's saying sinners without the law perish. And everybody he was writing to knew that. But then in the second half of verse 12, he says the thing that shocks them. Sinners with the law are judged. And then the first half of verse 13, mere law hearers are not righteous. And then the second half of verse 13, law obeyers are declared righteous. And then in 1415, the parenthetical Gentiles sometimes obey the law. And he's not saying that in a way that will ultimately justify them. But he's simply, he's kind of tidying up his, his logical point there. His point is that God does not show favoritism. God's judgment is impartial. 
the word for favoritism here is an interesting one. Uh, it is the appearance before one's face. It, it's literally to receive the face of someone. It's something that God said, is said not to do in a number of places in the scriptures. And it's something that we who are his followers are not to do either. We're never to give preferential treatment to someone based upon surface judgments. Uh, we shouldn't do that with others because God has certainly not done that with us. Great example of this in Jesus' teaching, of course, is in Luke 18, the parable of the publican, the tax collector, and the Pharisee. We read that Jesus was talking to some who were confident of their own righteousness, just like who Romans 2 is addressed to, and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like all these other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, friends, as we were thinking about in our first session together, to be justified means to be declared righteous by God, to be vindicated on the last day. But how can sinners ever be vindicated? That's the question that, is, that has been previewed, that it will happen in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, but then all the rest of chapter 1 makes it seem like there will be nobody. And then when you think, well, at least the Jews, now chapter 2 is evacuating that hope. And it makes it seem like, well, then, then no one is going to be justified. No one's going to be vindicated. Well, well, let's just say at this point in Romans, at least, we certainly can't do it ourselves. That's why the verb here in verse 13 is passive. It's done to us if we're, it's to be done at all by the only one who can do it, God himself. Paul will make the point himself in the passage that uh, I hope to read at the very end of this message tonight when he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that no one will be justified by observing the law. Well, then how will one be justified? Well, without tipping my hand into Romans 3 too much yet, it's, uh, it's what Paul has already written to the Galatians. Where he says, a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. You see, this is how the Gentiles are going to be able to be justified too, in the same way. And we're going to hear about that tomorrow morning from Romans 4, Lord willing. Uh, Paul says to the Galatians, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. Well the law in Romans 2 is doing that leading work. By first disabusing us. Of any thoughts of our own righteousness. Even a righteousness that we would attach. To our reception of God's revelation. God's people receiving God's truth. Now, my guess is not many of us are sitting here tonight uh, thinking exactly in the same manner as a first century, many first century Jews would have thought 
that we are justified merely because we possess the law. I understand that. But we do possess other things, don't we? So maybe we think that we really understand the Bible or the cross or the atonement or even justification. Uh, maybe we can out-argue a friend at work about what Christianity teaches salvation is. But does that mean that we're saved? Does that mean that we're justified? Friends, beware the self-deception that can come through the pleasing experience of merely knowing something. And again, I say this especially to a group of 700 people who are spending three days in the book of Romans. It is a wonderful thing to pull aside for a couple of days on a weekend to think through perhaps the most important book ever written. It is a wonderful thing. But I'm aware there is a satisfaction that we can take in understanding something mentally that can actually deceive us. That we can think that mere mental understanding is all there is. But friends, please understand, demons would do quite well on a theology exam. Yeah, they're all going to get 100, okay? They, they all, they'll get better grades than, than Ryan and Greg and me. They won't miss any questions. But these people who know these things oppose God with their whole beings. These demons. It's one thing to be a scholar about God. It's another thing to be a child of God. This is one of the reasons that in our churches we need to have a culture of patience where we wait to give people responsibilities. We can hear the words of a new member immediately, but it takes us a little longer to see what they really mean by those words as we watch their lives. Do they seem to love God? Do they seem to give themselves to God's people? Do they not only hear God's word, but do they obey it? And after they're here for a few years... And then they get offended. Do they take off, go someplace else? Friends, be careful about giving such people too much authority or responsibility. I was talking to a friend just recently about a situation in his own church. He had had to go through some pretty painful decisions. And as a result, the family closest to his own uh, had decided to go elsewhere to church. He told me it was a wrenching experience to hear that news, to know that he was going to have to explain to his own family why the people they sat with in the pew every Sunday aren't going to be there anymore. They're going elsewhere. My, my point's not that you should never change churches. No, I, I'm simply saying that God does not specially favor those who merely talk well, but who don't live well. And if God doesn't, neither should we in our churches. We need to be careful. One more reason Paul gives that hypocrisy is pointless, because God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verses 16 to 23. God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. Look with me there at verse 16. This will take place on the day that God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior, because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law in the embodiment of knowledge and you have the law, the embodiment, of, uh, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, 
Do you rob temples and commit sacrilege? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Friends, I don't know about you, but when I I read this, I, I think Paul must have heard or heard of Jesus' teaching when he just takes the bark off the Pharisees. You know, that last week of his public ministry in Matthew 23, in the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That's what Paul is warning about here as he describes the the futile attempt to morally hide from God, to deceive God by your language. Again, follow Paul's argument here. Uh, Verse 17a, if you call yourself a Jew, second half of 17, if you rely on the law, 18, if you're instructed by the law, 19 and 20, if you have the law, you see he's just piling it on here. Then his point for this part is the first half of 21, Do you not teach yourself? And then he gives the examples. In the second half of 21, stealing. First half of 22, adultery. Second half of 22, sacrilege. Uh, 23, the summary, dishonor God by breaking the law. And notice all the rhetorical questions Paul uses. Rhetorical questions like these are powerful because they immediately, almost involuntarily, provoke you to answer them in your own head. Before I loved Jesus... I loved Socrates. I was addicted to the Socratic dialogues of Plato. And I loved the way he educated by asking questions. It's generally, pedagogically, far more powerful than me telling you something. If I can ask you a question, and I know how you're going to answer the question normally. You know, if it's a simple, straightforward question, you you fashion the question so that it will be asked in such a way to provoke a particular answer. But then when we, having heard the question, almost involuntarily provide the answer... It double underscores it in our own mind. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. You know if you steal. You know if you commit adultery. You know how you're breaking God's law. So friends, in the first century, there was hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy among the Jews. Now, there is religious hypocrisy. But neither the hypocrisy of long ago nor the current hypocrisy can foil or frustrate the sure and righteous judgment of Jesus Christ. Many people are used to thinking of Jesus as a savior. But they're not so used to thinking of Jesus as a judge. But that's how he is presented in the Bible. Jesus himself taught that the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son, John 5. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. That's what the early disciples went out and preached. Peter, you think, in Acts chapter 10, he says, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And Paul said in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And in the book of Revelation, you even have the striking request on the part of some who are about to be judged. This is Revelation 6.16. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I had a friend, pastor friend, email me this week and said, hey, do you know of any good songs on the wrath of the Lamb? No. (laughs) I mean, lo, he comes with clouds descending. Look, he saints the sight is glorious. Those are both from the 1700s. Drew, can you guys write anything today on this? Okay. You got one? No, but you'll work on it. All right. Uh, 
Friends, this is, this is an important part of our understanding correctly who Jesus is. And we need to know that hypocrisy will not be sufficient cover to hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So, friend, if you are a stranger here to him, take him not as your enemy, but as your friend. Resign yourself to him. Make a happy surrender to him, even tonight. He lived the perfect life. He died the death on the cross that he has as a substitute for all who will repent of their sins and trust in him. And he calls on us to do that today, and that is your only hope. It will not be your religious obediences or even your work of super irrigation of going to church on a Friday night. <laughs> Beware the attractiveness of hypocrisy. How much easier it is to know about someone than to know them. Facts can be summoned and dismissed at will in a way people can't be. You can master a body of knowledge. You can not in the same way master other people. Let's be honest, in some ways hypocrisy is easier, at least initially. It's easier to claim to love people than to love them. To say that you believe something rather than to really think and consider than believe something. To say that you prayed and read your Bible today than to really pray and read your Bible today. To say that you tell people about Christ than really to tell people about Christ. Hypocrisy, at least in the short term, is the path of least resistance. It is the easy way. And we like ease. Churches are built selling ease. Hypocrisy is more at peace with a bendable conscience. More time for golf. Self-focused spending. Friends, in all these ways, hypocrisy is easier. Beware how subtle it is. It is hypocrisy's whole attraction to be easy and to seem natural. One of hypocrisy's most dangerous characteristics is, to the hypocrite anyway, it often seems to be asymptomatic. That is, it seems like it has no side effects. It seems like it's not doing anything to you. It's, it's really invisible. You can't tell you have it until someone points it out. What is hypocrisy? It's not looking like you're as sick as you really are. It's looking better than you are. Oh, Greg, you look so young for being 40. Well, does that mean he's not going to die? I kind of don't mind looking old. You know, that, I mean that half humorously. I mean that half seriously. Uh, our, our culture is addicted to youth. I don't mind dry skin reminding me this whole thing's going to rot soon. You know? <laughs> I mean, I kind of I like being reminded. It's, uh, it's true. It, it just, it, it's a wake-up call constantly. Hypocrisy will be shown to be an illusion. It will be revealed. You remember those words of Jesus in Matthew 25, in the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Preachers who are here, that's why you want to be committed to searchingly presenting the law of God and the fullness of its demands on us. Romans 2, in some ways, is the hardest chapter in the whole book of Romans. Well, in the first half of chapter 3. 
You know, this is where we're doing the very hard work. And at that same time, we have to hold out Christ <clears throat> as the only hope of justification for sinners like you and me. Only that way can the omnipotent, omniscient God crack open all the, the crypts of our past sins lying hidden around in the days of our lives and we still have a confident hope of being declared righteous by God because that hope is not based on our own sins or their absence. It's based on what God has done in Christ. Hypocrisy is, the, is pointless in the face of Christ's judgment because Christ will discover all of the hypocrite's secrets, every single one of them. One more thing Paul argues here about hypocrisy that concludes the chapter. He argues that hypocrisy is blasphemous. And he argues that at the end of the chapter. Look with me in chapter 2 at verse 24. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. The Lord said through Isaiah, all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. And through Ezekiel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. That's Ezekiel 36, 22. If you ever want to remember why God saved you, it's for the sake of his name. Ezekiel 36, 22. And now here they are. In their hypocrisy, they were now failing in their mission. Look at Paul's argument. It's aimed clearly at the circumcised lawbreaker. Paul contrasts him first with the Jewish law observer and then with the Gentile law observer and then with the inward true Jew. An argument he's going to develop more in chapter 9. We will come to, Lord willing, tomorrow evening. Verse 25 there, the first half, the, the circumcised law observer. But then this shocking category, second half, verse 25, the circumcised law breaker. And then verse 26, the uncircumcised law keeper, just to shame them some. And then verse 27, again, the circumcised law breaker. And then his evaluation of it, verse 28, merely an outward Jew. And what we should be, verse 29, is an inward Jew. So here's, you want to know the big irony in chapter 2? Who is fulfilling Israel's purpose? The believing Gentiles. They are fulfilling Israel's purpose. Much more to come on that in chapters 9 to 11. So whereas in verse 1 of chapter 2, it was the Jew condemning the Gentile. Now in verse 27, you have the Gentile condemning the Jew. And how is the Jewish lawbreaker condemned in verse 24? Well, it's breaking the third commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is what those people who had publicly taken God's name and bore it and yet lived contrary to his character, this is what they did. It doesn't mean when you, when you say 
two bad words together you shouldn't say. I mean, yes, that is taking the Lord's name in vain, but that's, that's a, a pitifully simple and one tiny and not in the main most important way to break that command. Most important way to break that command is hypocrisy. It is to take the name of God upon yourself and then to live contrary to it. That is taking the name of the Lord in vain. That's the kind of hypocrisy that Paul is warning of here. This is what those people who publicly bore God's name and yet lived contrary to his character did. They misused God's name. In fact, here Paul says they caused it to be blasphemed among the nations. And to emphasize still further the religious hypocrite's guilt in this, the Greek word order in verse 24 is interesting. The emphasis is on the, the you. God's name, because of you, is blasphemed among the nations. Friend, I wonder if anyone is misunderstanding God today because of how you have misrepresented him. If you've tuned out for any reason, let me invite you to tune right back in. We're at the very end of the evening together. And this could be the most significant thing, at least in this message, for you. Is anyone blaspheming God because of the way you have been living around here? I don't merely mean that they are angry at God. Sinners are often angry at a holy God without any help from you or me. <laughs> they don't need us to be angry at God. But I mean, is God misunderstood by someone because of you? Have you slandered him by bearing God's name and yet living in such a way that's contrary to his will to his own holy and loving character. That's what Paul was saying, the hypocritical Jews that he's here imagining were doing. And that's also what church members today do who have never been truly born again. You take God's name in vain, not by swearing, but by sinning. Even as you call yourself a Christian. Whereas Christ lived in such a way as to bring glory and honor to the Father, do you, Christian, live in such a way as to bring shame and dishonor to him? Consider carefully your responsibility before the world as the one who bears Christ's name. You don't need to be perfect to be a Christian, but you do need to be truly born again. Hypocrisy is a greater enemy to the truth than unbelief. Simple unbelief is a verbal denial. Hypocrisy is a denial by life. It says, I've tried it, and really, it's just about the words. How can you tell if you're a hypocrite? Well, when you feel convicted about your sin... Do you find yourself taking God's part against your sin or your sin's part and defending it to God? Whatever differences there may be between hypocrisy and unbelief, the remedies are the same. Repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. Just a, a final word, especially to those of us who are leaders in the church. We have to be careful here. Spurgeon put it so well, we are watched by a thousand eagle eyes. Let us so act that we shall never need to care if all heaven, earth, and hell swell the list of spectators. Friends, for your part, labor and strive to make sure that your church lives in such a way as to protect and glorify God's name and to add to his reputation and to bring him honor. And friends, living like that will rule out hypocrisy because hypocrisy among Christians is blasphemous and it's a misrepresentation of God. And it will not justify you you see how Paul is just burning down this house of relying on religious appearance it's not going to vindicate you on the last day so if hypocrisy really is as I've said here inexcusable and pointless and even blasphemous that's what Paul said 
then how can we kill it? And this will be my really last word. <laughs> Come on, I'm a Baptist preacher. <laughs> Baptist preachers are like Beethoven with symphonies. We have multiple endings. <laughs> Let's just consider how to kill hypocrisy. The answer is right there in the last sentence in verse 29, where we find that our praise should be from God, not from men. Look there at that last sentence, verse 29. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Consider the difference between what brings praise from men and what brings praise from God. What brings praise from men? Well, it's that kind of maybe censoriousness up in verse 1. Or verses 12 and 13, the, the religious identity and the religious knowledge. Or all those things, those questions in verses 17 to 22, that, that moral teaching. All that can bring praise from men. What brings praise from God? Good deeds, obeying the Father's will, he said throughout the chapter. Through Jesus Christ, he said in verses 13 and here in verse 29. And in verse 29, by a spirit-circumcised heart. Cut hypocrisy off at the roots. Decide to declare war on your desire to please people. Take the trouble to make the spiritual calculations and decisions. Which is worth more? The circumcision of the flesh or the circumcision of the heart? That which is affected by the law or that which is affected by the spirit of God? That which is approved by humans or that which is approved by God? Paul says it's the latter. Is that your answer? Friends, it should be. Don't mistake the world's perception of you for the truth. Calvin said that hypocrisy is that which seems something great before men, but is nothing in God's eyes. I'm going to say that again. Calvin said that hypocrisy is that which seems something great before men, but is nothing in God's eyes. Friends, on that last day, your pastor does not want to find you spiritually bankrupt, having invested everything in the passing approval of the world which becomes nothing. So in this chapter 2, Paul is assaulting a shallow self-righteousness. And if you find yourself tonight on that small boat, realize it is not seaworthy and get off. Hypocrisy is an ill-fated vessel that carries no freight safely home. None. Friends, I urge you to be dissatisfied with a religious profession which doesn't expose and challenge your own hypocrisy. Pray that God will expose your need today for Jesus Christ. The responsibility we bear ultimately is not to man who can be fooled by our crude hypocrisies, but it's to God who can never be. And that was Paul's argument to his readers in his day, and that is his argument to us here tonight. Here he clears away all human self-righteousness to prepare us for the glorious news of the righteousness of Christ upon whom alone we must depend. And that's what he does throughout chapter 3 where he then turns the screws severely in verses 1 through, 9, uh, through 18. And uh, I won't take time to read those. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said he saw more conversions happen under his ministry from chapter 3, preaching on chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 than any verses in the Bible. 
Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. All right, friends, 3.20 is where the argument that's begun in 1.18 is concluded. And it's concluded in a most depressing way. Uh, it's time for us to go to bed. It's night. And where we have ended is right there. Everything you would trust in other than Jesus Christ has been burnt to the ground. And if you're not sure of that before you go to bed tonight, reread chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And in case that depresses you too much, I conclude by reading you the really, really good news. That begins here in chapter 3, verse 21. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he has left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies the man who has faith in Jesus. Praise God. We will think more about that glorious message tomorrow morning when Greg brings us into the palace of chapter four. Let's pray. Lord, we do feel as if our righteousness has been burnt down. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would burn it more. You see those ways when we attempt to stand before you in our own merit. In your mercy, will you pursue us out of each one of those? Drive us to Christ alone. We ask for our good and for your glory in his name. Amen.